0: Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers and other documents. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cottom is our interpretive guide. This episode tells of the transfer of Governor John Sevier's remains from a field in Alabama to a burial site in downtown Knoxville.
1: Unearthed, the remains of John Sevier. Excerpted from the Knoxville Journal, June 18th, 1889. Montgomery, Alabama, June 17th. At 6 o'clock this morning, Governor Taylor and Party of Tennessee, accompanied by Governor C. and members of his staff, went to the depot under the escort of a battalion of the 2nd Regiment of Alabama State Troops. They boarded the special train provided by the Western Railway of Alabama, and the journey to Old Fort Decatur, near which point ex-Governor Severe was buried, was taken up. Governor Taylor was looking as fresh as possible, and in his good-humored, off-hand, open way, was captivating Alabamians as fast as he met them. There was one sentiment which seemed to be entertained unanimously, and that was that Tennesseans might give Alabamians a few pointers on progress and push, but they would have to sit by and take a lesson in hospitality. Forty miles landed the party at a road crossing two miles west of Cowell Station, the nearest station to Fort Decatur. This stopping place was only about 200 yards east of the old fort thrown up by Andrew Jackson during his wars with the Indians, and about 100 yards west of the fort, at the foot of the hill, the Tallapoosa River winds like a silver thread on its course to the sea. The troops were drawn up alongside the country road leading eastward. The march to the resting place of Governor Severe was taken up, headed by Governor Taylor and members of his party, followed by Governor C and his staff and a number of citizens of Montgomery who were mounted to participate in the ceremonies of recovering the remains. The road led up over a steep hill which the party climbed, thankful for the shade afforded by the trees growing on either side of the roadway. They came to a cultivated field stretching away for about a quarter of a mile, and across this, the advanced scouts were scattered hunting for the grave. The discovery was soon announced by shouting and waving of hats and handkerchiefs by the party of scouters on the crest of a little rise in the cotton field. This called for an advance of the governors, and the dusty walk through the cotton field was begun, with the sun pouring down rays hot enough for August. The party gathered about an enclosure eight feet square, sitting in the cotton field. The little plat was surrounded by an iron fence, which was apparently set up only temporarily. At the western end of this enclosure, there was firmly fixed in the ground a white headstone about two feet wide and two inches thick, standing two feet in height. This stone bore the inscription, John Severe died September 24, 1815. In the southeastern corner of the enclosure, a slow tree was growing, seeming to be one of the features marking the spot. The photographer was on hand, and before the arrivals of the two governors had made negatives of the grave as it stood when found by the party. Another individual who was also early on deck was the relic hunter, and Tennesseans and Alabamians hastened to secure a twig or branch of the tree which stood by Sevier's grave. This tree contained a wasp's nest, which was discovered before the wasps were aroused from their noonday nap, and a Tennessean, who had evidently been engaged with wasps before, lighted a piece of newspaper and with the blaze drove them away from their home. One of the laborers climbed into the enclosure and cut down the little slow tree, which stood a sentinel, watching at the foot of the hero's grave, and when the tree fell, relic hunters took possession of it. The work of disinterment was under the supervision of two undertakers, Mr. Newman of Knoxville, on the part of Tennessee, and W. Campbell of this city, appointed by Governor C. The line of the graves marked out, and R.T. Armond of Knoxville broke the dirt. The labor of digging was commenced about 10 o'clock, and after going down a foot or two, the workmen, both of whom were practical grave diggers, said the formation was distinctly the form of the grave, and they pressed on, hoping they would soon be rewarded. For more than an hour they toiled. Governor Taylor sat on a pine stump at the foot of the grave, while Governor C. rested on a seat near the head and watched interestedly the progress of the work. After the gravediggers had cleared out the grave to a depth of about two feet, the pick struck a hollow place, and the crust through which its point had gone began to cave in. Then came the work of close investigation. A hole was opened, showing an arch or round crest of earth formed over the vault or receptacle for the coffin. The soil thrown out from beneath this arch was submitted to Dr. Boyd of Governor Taylor's staff and Professor W.T. Lupton of the Agricultural and Mechanical College at Auburn, both of whom pronounced it mixed with disintegrated animal matter. The work of further uncovering the grave continued till the arch was entirely destroyed, revealing beneath a vault dug in clay, almost flinty-hard and shaped exactly like the old-style homemade coffin, small at the head, broad at the shoulders, and tapering toward the feet. The party about the grave closed in, watching with interest the proceedings, and the formation of the arch of solid earth over the pit where the coffin originally lay was the wonder of everyone who saw it. The handsome metallic case was brought to the side of the grave as soon as the hollow was found, and the dust found in the portion of the vault first opened was placed inside it. This was at the head, exactly under the headstone, and a sharp lookout was kept as it was expected that the skull of the deceased would probably be discovered, but a close search failed to reveal it. There was some disappointment at this and the party was loath to return with nothing more than a casket half filled with earth which scientists pronounce decayed animal matter. This feeling of disappointment did not prevail long when the laborer in the grave reached the center of the vault his shovel grated against something and an examination of the shovel full of the dirt brought up Show two or three nails badly corroded, but still with a firm center. These nails were carefully examined by Dr. Boyd, who pronounced them hand-forged. A little nearer the foot, the shovel brought up a whitish object covered with that peculiar substance noted on things undergoing what is termed dry rot. Dr. Boyd took the object and pronounced a piece of bone. The doctor examined it carefully and said it was a portion of the thigh bone. This piece was about fourteen or fifteen inches in length, and the remnant was from the center of the bone, a little shorter, but the same in every particular. A little nearer the foot of the coffin-shaped vault, a few more nails were found, and another piece of bone, about six or eight inches long, but smaller in diameter than the first one. Next the shovel threw up a piece of wood. It was a small bit, about six inches long, an inch wide, and not more than an eighth of an inch thick. Its exterior showed that from all sides of it, other wood had decayed away. It was broken in two and proved to be a sliver of pine so fat that the rosin in it stuck to the fingers of those who handled it. The remainder of the crust of arch was broken away, and when the loose dirt was thrown off, a quantity of white particles, evidently bits of bone, were taken up and placed in the casket. The grave had been carefully cleared from about the shoulders to the feet and the negro engaged in the work turned towards the head. The first shovelful revealing nothing, before he took another he stooped and picked up something and handed it to Dr. Boyd saying, here's a tooth. Dr. Boyd took the little object, handed him, and on looking at it confirmed the assertion. Every shovelful taken from the head of the grave after this find was carefully examined resulting in finding ten or twelve of the teeth of the deceased. The grave was cleaned out, leaving the coffin-shaped vault with its bottom, while the bones and teeth filled the casket. Everyone about the grave was satisfied with the results, and none more so than Governor Taylor and the descendants of Governor Severe who were present. The latter say that every circumstance revealed by the search confirms the history of the burial of Governor Sevier at that spot now almost 74 years ago. The party reached this city at 3 p.m. At the depot tonight, speeches were made thanking Montgomery for the cordial reception tendered to the party. They left at 6.30 for Calera amid booming of cannon. At last, Sevier's remains at rest, excerpted from the Knoxville Journal, June 20th, 1889. All that is mortal of John Sevier lies beneath the sod in the courthouse square. How little or how much of the common clay, it matters not. Tennessee has at last discharged a duty incumbent upon her citizens for three-quarters of a century. Knoxville has been greatly honored in being the final resting place of the first governor of Tennessee. The city was thronged with visitors from different parts of the state, as well it might have been. Descendants of Nolichucky Jack were here, military companies paraded the streets, bands discoursed sweet music suitable to the occasion. The sturdy yeomanry, all classes of citizens of East Tennessee and other parts of the great state braved the storms and honored themselves in honoring the memory of John Severe. It was Severe Day. At 9.45 yesterday morning, a heavy train pulled out of the Union Depot at Chattanooga. Two cars were set apart for the committee appointed to disinter the remains of Severe, the governor and his staff, and descendants of the Severe family. These two cars were draped in black and white and the national colors. Another car contained detachments from the three military companies of Chattanooga, acting as a guard of honor. As the train swept along through Cleveland, Charleston, Athens, and other towns along the route, Hundreds of people stood in silent reverence and in many instances with uncovered heads. The funeral drapery that hung limp and wet on the sides of the cars attracted the attention of the curious and made a sign to the knowing ones that the revered dust of John Severe was speeding to its final resting place. The train was pulled into the Union Depot at 1.15. A large crowd was gathered in the vicinity. The members of the committees to receive the descendants of the illustrious and distinguished dead were present, and carried out their part of the program with befitting dignity and exceeding great courtesy. The detachment of Chattanooga soldiers, who had acted as guard of honor on the way up, were relieved by a detachment of the Greenville Rifles, who were in turn relieved by detachments of other visiting military organizations. The casket was removed from the train, and the soldier boys stood guard in the waiting room until it was placed on the catafalque nearly two hours later. Thousands of people, estimated by some at 30,000, thronged the streets. Thousands of flags fluttered in the cooling breezes, though considerably drabbled by the terrific rainstorm. Every train poured its hundreds into the city. The special train from Chattanooga brought in hundreds from below but for the threatening aspect of the weather, hundreds more would have come to pay homage to John Severe. By 2 o'clock, the streets were alive with soldiers and civilians in carriages, on horseback and afoot. There was hurrying to places assigned for the different sections of the great parade. About 3 o'clock, the pageant was ready to move. The elegant casket had been wrapped in a silken banner loaned by Reverend J. H. Frazee. The Knoxville Turnverein had placed at the head a magnificent wreath of flowers with the letters T.V. worked in colors. The Ladies' Memorial Association had placed a basket of magnolias at the side of the casket. On the center lay a wreath of immortelles with the figures of a sword and tomahawk worked in small dark flowers. This was brought from Montgomery on the top of the casket and was presented by Mrs. R. M. Berry, formerly of Tennessee. Captain Allison, of the Knoxville Rifles, had placed a large floral cross at the foot of the casket. Mrs. B. L. Wyman of Montgomery contributed flowers. With all these floral offerings, the casket was borne to the catafalque by regularly chosen pallbearers. The catafalque had been wreathed with magnolias and the choicest flowers of the conservatory, and when the flower-laden casket had been placed in position, the order was given to move. From a window halfway down Gay Street, the pageant could be seen at its best. It was magnificent in every respect. The street was teeming with thousands of sightseers. Every window and other point of vantage was occupied. The procession extended from the corner of Depot and Gay to Gay and Main. Nothing could better show the love of the people for their first governor. When the head of the monster procession arrived at the courthouse, the military companies preceding the catafalque marched past the east gate and allowed the carriage of the dead to be drawn up to the sidewalk. Governor Taylor's staff dismounted from their horses and took their place at the head of the funeral cortege. As soon as the handsome case was removed from the catafalque, the procession moved toward the stage erected for the speakers. There the casket was deposited and the burial exercises begun. Fully 10,000 people were in attendance, so many, in fact, that it was impossible for those on the outskirts of the assemblage to hear a sentence that was pronounced by any of the speakers. As far as I could reach, it was one human mass. The big platform, erected immediately in front of the east steps of the courthouse, was jammed with people. Even the roof over the east courthouse porch was covered, and many occupied seats on the parapet of the same. On the speaker's platform, besides many citizens, were the severe committee, Governor Taylor and staff, the speaker of the day, and the great-grandchildren of the famous hero to whose memory the day was being observed, occupied several scores of chairs. It was a big crowd, and it had been waiting such a length of time that many of them were becoming impatient, and even after the exercises commenced were noisy, and it was quite a long time before quiet reigned. Honorable Joshua W. Caldwell acted as chairman and introduced as the first speaker His Excellency Robert L. Taylor, Governor of Tennessee. The Governor was received with applause. In his true statesmanlike manner, he delivered the address in which he turned over to the Severe Committee all that was mortal of ex-Governor John Severe. The concluding exercises were conducted at the grave by Reverend James Park, D.D., Pastor of the First Presbyterian Church. The services were quite solemn and impressive. After the casket had been lowered into its windowless palace and the huge marble slab placed over the top of the sepulcher, it was magnificently decorated with beautiful flowers by the ladies of Rebecca, Degree Lodge IOOF. Many handsome floral tributes were from descendants of the dead hero who were thus given an opportunity to do honor to one held in memory. Knox County
0: historian Steve Cotton will give us some background on this article.
2: The question as to whether John Sevier is really buried on the courthouse lawn is one that has perennially come up here in the library because there is such a thing as a cenotaph which is a marker where there is no body. Mm -hmm. And that's always been one of those stories that people are curious about. And, uh, so that was one of the first reference questions I ever got, got hit with in my early days in the McClung collection. Uh, the files in the library are extraordinarily detailed and good. Yes, indeed. His body was returned from Alabama where he had died back in the 18 teens to Knoxville at the end of the 1880s. And, uh, he was buried there with a lot of pomp and ceremony, uh, and a kind of amazing amount of protocol, and, uh, and I think it was 1880, 89. His um, second wife, Bonnie Kate Severe, was, uh, then there were, there were DAR groups advocated moving her body to join him. She was also buried in Alabama. She moved with her children down to Russellville, Alabama. So finally, in 1922, her body was moved to the Knox County Courthouse lawn, and she was actually buried there, nearby.
0: Did they have as many good bone fragments of her body? I, they
2: had, her body, you know, she was actually buried in a in a small town, and I think it was a a much more it was a much more traditional funeral burial. Probably the body was you know much better shaped than General Severe was because he was. Down in the you know wilderness, on a surveying expedition when he died, and it's kind of surprising that somebody had the foresight to mark his gravesite because he could have very easily just been lost down there forever in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But anyway, after that, the descendants of John Severe's first wife put up a cenotaph to her.
0: That was Sarah Hawkins
2: Yeah, she died during Indian Wars. Uh, under you know really trying circumstances she died in when the family was uh as they called it in those days forted they were they were in a, blo- in a blockaded ha- uh, fort in in a protected place and they took her body out and buried it and carefully hid where she was buried so that the indians wouldn't uh, destroy her body or hurt her body, you know. So uh, they buried her in the dark of night. There's an account of this, and the children all went along. It was kind of stormy night. and Buried her, and then they drove wagons over the gravesite so that it would disappear, so that nobody would find it and, and dig her up. So she's she is truly lost to history. Nobody wow. remembers where exactly where she was buried.
0: Which wife had been the first lady of Tennessee?
2: The second wife, mm-hmm. uh, Bonnie, Bonnie Kate. The fir- his first wife died. uh... During the Revolutionary War, I think. I believe it was in the 1770s or 1780. So um, that's, there's a whole array of you know interesting characters just behind the, the story of those those three markers on the courthouse lawn. Uh, John Sevier was uh, famous for having fought and, and won all of his, his battles, most of which were with Indians, the Cherokee and the Creeks. Um, and a few with um, Tories and whatnot, but he uh, almost got killed one time. He was an amazingly successful military leader and uh, almost got killed once, but otherwise, you know, came through unscathed. He se- sort of seemed to have led a magic or a charmed life until, until the uh, end of his life. He was on this surveying expedition, and he was like many of the founding fathers. He was land-rich and money-poor. He was this. He was this. Was the 18 teens, and he was um, let's see, born in 1745. So he was, you know, getting to be for that time, elderly. He was. He had been a member of Congress, but he didn't have a lot of cash, and he had a lot of debts, and he had an enormous amount of land, just like Jefferson and some other folks. So when he died, the estate was uh, unexpectedly on this surveying expedition. The estate was all tangled up in legal. Uh, problems, and he left a family, to, his large family, to sort all those problems out later. But I was just fascinated with the amount of protocol that went into planning this. Uh, the Probably the main person that that constantly pushed to bring his body back to Knoxville throughout his lifetime was the historian, Dr. J.G.M. Ramsey. He He advocated this, he talked about it, and everybody always said, that's a great idea, but nobody ever... Did anything about trying to make it happen, and finally, I guess probably because you know, I'm thinking here that you had your centennials, uh, the United States Centennial in the 1870s, and the Tennessee Centennial coming up in in the 1890s, that it seemed like a really fit time to pursue this. And the governor Robert Love Taylor, who was a kind of a romantic, uh, historical-minded person got bitten with the idea of agreeing to help make this happen and then the local people started raising money to make a proper monument on the courthouse lawn which of course was going to be East Tennessee marble in the the form of a big obelisk so they arranged this incredibly this incredible pageantry of a trip down you know, the governor of Tennessee going down into Alabama meeting the governor of Alabama and then going to the gravesite and bringing the body back and it was a it was a huge public event. Mm-hmm. It, it was really kind of surprising how much attention people were paying to it. To me,
0: and mm. the bands playing and all mm, the flags the waving, a lot,
2: lots of music, lots of you know, dr- uh, mm-hmm. s- little snare drums going, and uh, and of
0: course hours of speeches.
2: Oh, hours of speeches! That was the thing in the nineteenth century. Endless. I mean, it was nothing for um, a speech to go on for. An hour, hour and a half, two hours, and I'm sure there were some very long speeches at the interment ceremony because it was a huge, big event. The governor of Alabama didn't come, but uh, Governor Taylor did, so I'm sure there were you know, lots of dignitaries and everybody had to be recognized. And it was, it was a big deal, and it did bring his ashes back from the the farther reaches of of Alabama back to Knoxville, which I think is very appropriate. His descendants had really scattered, so the family had moved on. The second wife, Bonnie Kate severe died in, in Russellville, Alabama, with one son, and the family just kept moving west, which was is not surprising, considering you know the the uh, the frontier, uh, the itchy feet frontier kind of roots that the family had. They 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 kept moving into the deep south and then uh, into the west.
0: Mm-hmm. I've been very impressed with the fact that the newspaper would run full text of the mm-hmm. speeches that uh, were made, and we've run into this in several of the podcasts mm-hmm. that we've done, and mm-hmm. and we've had Robbie read some of those speeches mm-hmm. for previous episodes. I actually left the speech out this time. Mm-hmm.
2: The speeches are kind of florid. Oh, they are. Heavy, very heavy. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, oratory was something that was enormously admir- admired at the time. And I've I've been surprised how many times you get the texts of speeches more than you do details of what went on at the event. Oh. It's uh it's interesting that people were that interested in reading speeches mm-hmm. at, the, at the time. Mm-hmm. I always think of the, you know, the Gettysburg address and you know, Edward Everett went on and, on and on and on and on and on and then Abraham Lincoln stood up and talked for, you know, a minute or whatever and <laughs> nobody <laughs> cares what the big name orator of, of the day said, but everybody knows the Gettysburg address. Yeah. But uh, it is interesting that they did that. This was a time when I mean, you have to kind of think back to the—I I th- think—to the—to that era—to how they were viewing the context of their own times in in U.S. history. I think that we had just come up on a centennial. We were as a nation had reached the grand old age of a hundred years, and you put okay. that in perspective. You know, they were beginning to kind of. Think back to Sevier as the founding, a founding father of Tennessee, and I think that was, um, and to really begin, I think to appreciate the history that uh, that had happened over the previous century, century and a half, written down by some really extraordinary people. J.G.M. Ramsey. It's a shame Ramsey did not live to see that happen poor man died in 1874 so he missed it by 15 years but oh. all his life he was he was pushing for it and i think he i think he would be very happy that it, that it finally did
0: happen mm. well, thank you very much steve <laughs> you've been listening to historic knoxville news a podcast of the knox county public library the podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlive.org that's k-n-o-x-l-i-d dot O-R-G. On the podcast's page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. You can leave your comments on each podcast episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. Special thanks go to the Friends of the Library for their support of the podcasts by giving us some really nice headphones, microphones, editing software, and various other items. It's so great to have such friends. The music was performed by Music Therapy, and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenneman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, copyright 2008 by Knox County Public Library.